Hey everyone, Cami here. Whew. We are a couple months out from book publication. And I just wanted to say that, um, you know, as books are now, as other people's books are now being launched sort of into a pandemic timeline, it's making me realize how disappointed I am that I didn't get to interact with all of you um, when Save Yourself launched and that all those tickets uh, to the live shows had to be refunded. So um, I wanted to say, you know, if you have purchased the book, I'd love to hear from you. Please let me know what you think. Uh, tweet at me. Post it on Instagram. Write a review. Um, it means the world to me to interact with y'all. And it was crushing to have things uh, canceled at the last minute, specifically about this book, which I love so much. So um, please reach out. Let me know what you thought. Save yourself. A bestseller. This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart. And as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback. And I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros. Cami here. I am incredibly excited about today's episode. My guest is Elle Hearns. Elle is the founder of the Mark P. Johnson Institute. And if you follow me on my socials, which, by the way, why do you listen to this podcast and not follow me on my socials? But if you do, you would have seen Elle on my Instagram during the Share the Mic Now campaign. Um, we talk about that, but also the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. And I was just I was just incredibly grateful uh, to Elle for her time and um, in— that takeover of my Instagram and then also to come on the podcast. So please enjoy this episode. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling, I know, I know, I know it's careless. Awesome. Well, I always have guests introduce themselves. Will you introduce yourself? Absolutely. My name is Elle Hearns. I am the founder and executive director of the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. My pronouns are mandatory and they are she, her, and hers. And I am a native of Columbus, Ohio. I've never heard somebody say my pronouns are mandatory. That's pretty cool. Um, is that is that a state is that a phrase you use often? I do. I think we've kind of bought into this idea that pronouns are available for interpretation as opposed to being ways that we honor not only who we are, but how we expect others to honor who we are. So I let people know, you know, that my pronouns are mine and I try my absolute best to respect others. Um, you know, especially under the guise of, you know, assumptions. I think we assume people's pronouns more than we uh, like to admit. Sure. How do you navigate that in your life? Do, do you find that you often ask folks for their pronouns? You know, I think I, you asked when we first met. I think you asked early, very early in the conversation. Yeah, for me, I interchange. So I go between using gender neutral pronouns for people whose pronouns I'm not aware of, or I ask directly, uh, specifically in more intimate interactions, I ask. But for those yeah. not as intimate, I use just, you know, neutral language to be as respectful as I can. So you like, so in that case, you're going to default to the they, them, is yeah. what you're saying. 
Yes. Yeah. You know, I this is a very- for me to do, I should add, it was very difficult for me because, um, you know, as a trans woman, I came into, uh, this kind of larger understanding of transness, you know, after leaving jail. And so the pronouns that are used for you in jail are very different than, um, the pronouns of the world. And so, um, you know, just in my life, even prior to jail and just different experiences that I had, uh, pronouns were not necessarily something that I saw people empowered to define for themselves. Wow. I, is it all right if I ask you a little bit more about that? Uh, specifically, mm-hmm. specifically, uh, what, anything that might've happened? Mm-hmm during that time like what when you say that that there were different pronouns in that time in your life um that just first of all I just have so much compassion for you on hearing that that's the first thing that's why I had to do like a big exhale I'm like that sounds really tough um uh when was that in your life when when was was that uh, probably, oh, 2014. Um, mm. you know, and that was really the pivotal moment that kind of shifted my entire life into, you know, social justice and into activism and to this world of, um, you know, academia where there's certain language used to define and, uh, exalt one's lived experience. And so the lived experience that I had was very much so different connected to the language that um, people were using more uh, broadly in hierarchical type of uh, structures. So what was happening in your life before that? Like where, where, where were you living and what was going on for you? Oh, wow. So my adult life, I've lived <laughs> uh, back and forth between Columbus, Ohio and New York City. And I had experience um, you know, homelessness in both cities, uh, which is why there was just some back and forth. So housing insecurity is something I experienced tremendously throughout my 20s. Um, As I was trying to really figure out, you know, where home was for me as a Black trans woman, you know, um, trying to find a place where I felt not only comfortable, but that I felt alive is something that I had always been searching for. Um, and I never could find it in my hometown. And even in New York City, you know, I was an Ohio girl from New York City trying to find a home in this big place where um, if you don't have a lot of money, it's very difficult to find a home. And so, you know, that was the experience that I had consistently, you know, prior to moving to New York City, I worked in, you know, industries that you know, gave me, I think, a lot of knowledge that I'm able to use today, but it certainly didn't provide me um, any comfort, you know, around uh, living outside of poverty. And so, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, I think a lot of those experiences is what kind of shaped not only my politic, but my desire to create more for, for me and other people. During that time, were you sleeping outside? Were you like crashing with friends? What was the day to day? All of the above, you know. So, uh, you know, certainly during that time, had uh, moved into, you know, sharing a space with an intimate partner, and you know that was certainly an emotionally abusive 
um, living arrangement. And, you know, there was a, a time where I certainly was sleeping on couches, uh, sleeping on floors in New York City. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, I think the worst of it all was definitely sleeping in my car. Uh, you know, I lived in my car for about six months uh, in 2014. And, you know, so I always tell everyone that ultimately when you live these type of circumstances, it makes sense how you would end up in jail. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I also want to say those are not warm places. <laughs> so that's another thing. You know, I'm from I'm from Chicago and uh, and that's just it's a little it's. You know, all of this is. It's so like in L.A., um, there I live down the street from sort of an encampment of unhoused people. Mm-hmm. And in Los Angeles, what is different from what I'm used to seeing growing up is like um, because of the weather here, folks don't necessarily have to seek services in the winter. And so they can live folks. I mean, it's not it, this is not nobody. Nobody should. But it is possible to live outside year round. And so there are these like structures that folks build and then they're just living in a city within a city. And in Los Angeles, the housing is so expensive that the barrier to entry from like living in that way to living in the, you know, a studio apartment, it's like, it's just this huge gap. And because folks don't have to like connect to a system, I just often think about like, it's not, you know, I'm not, there, there is no perfect solution to this, but if it's a cold place, like there's a, there are systems that are then built up around providing somewhere to stay, like a shelter then might at least be a way to get somebody in the door for, you're shaking your head. Tell me, tell me the truth. Cause to uh, me, it's like, I look at, I look at the encampment yeah. down the street. I know that I could bring water. And then I think I literally, I don't even know, you know, I, I, um, follow and I'm invested and have even tried to, um, you know, volunteer with some places that, that provide food. But mm-hmm. in LA, I can't even figure out what's the system to yeah. get a person from here to here. And yeah. I don't know if that's better anywhere else. Yeah. So I, maybe you could tell me a little bit about that. No, I'm glad that you brought that, you brought that into it, into the space, because you know, I think it's an assumption. You know, I think we all want to have hope or something. And so we do look to systems. And, you know, the reality is that systems will always fail individuals, which is why we can't mm-hmm. actually look at any of the issues and problems of the world as being individualistic. Uh, you know, our analysis and understanding of systems is really where we'll find not only the root of the problem, but where we'll actually be able to develop solutions. And so in my experience, there was definitely, um, you know, services, but they were not services that were specific to uh, my identity or to, um, you know, to catering to me. And so, you know, in New York City, for instance, I attempted to access, you know, services and um, I was not married. I was not a cisgender woman and I did not have kids. And so that eliminated me from accessing the services that I was attempting to get and being, right. you know, not from New York City. I didn't know where else to go to try to get, you know, support and services. So, you know, it kind of led me to having the fin for myself and doing all kinds of survival work to try to you know, make ends meet. In Columbus, it was the same situation. You know, there weren't 
any homeless shelters that were specific to LGBT people in this community. And even to this day in 2020, that was six years ago, there's still no homeless shelters that are specific. And even prior to, you know, the Trump administration saying that, you know, shelters and, and, and state services are empowered to deny people services based on the appearance or based on facial hair, that is already the ways in which shelters were accessing and making space available to um, to women and in particular to trans women. So, you know, the idea that services have ever really been accessible is just really, I think, so disconnected from the experiences of so many of us who have lived on, you know, our own or, um, you know, lived without the support of services, families, or nonprofit organizations. Elle, thank you so much for the correction and, and the refocus. I mean, if, of course, um, what you're talking about is specific to the trans experience and exactly why in the LGBTQ community we need to talk about this. Because I think that, um, I mean, it's, it's specific to prison and it's specific to, um, to, shel- to the shelter system because both of those things isolate based on what the people who are running that particular organization, what they identify as your gender. So like there are single, there are, you know, the, the prison system is gendered and so is the shelter system. And in a way that, you know, is meant to, I guess, like be some, be based in some sort of a, like, I don't even know why they're, they're, you know, created that way i suppose because people should be treated because the, the maybe the assumption is that it like reduces something like sexual violence but instead of course it creates the exact opposite effect for for folks who are, who are trans like it the the isolation and the spe- the specific way that these systems affect our our trans family members is is like it's so important yeah. to talk about yeah, I mean, it's all built off of colonization, you know, so these structures are not without regard to labor. And so, you know, structurally, how there you- There we go, yeah. Is <laughs> right. your ability to control a population, to control mm-hmm. the binary in which we operate out of. And so that is the reason why, you know, gender has become such a foundation for our understanding of being because- it is a way for us to not only control um, each other, but it is a way essentially to control the labor that we're able to produce. And so the goal is to always create, you know, generative labor for those who have been impacted the most by systems while reducing labor for those who have the power, you know, to create and inform something different. So you're in this situation where... um And I mean, you can, again, you can, you can absolutely say, I don't want to answer that question, but were you able to access a women's prison? I was not. No. Um, I am. That is like, wow. Okay. Yes. I, uh, yeah. So, you know, I'm from Ohio. (laughs) So I say that as a badge of honor to represent my people who are from here, but I also say that as a way to identify 
why I think my voice has been so unique and so important to uh, the movement as it has shaped and formed is because there's a particular experience that Black trans women from the state of Ohio have. You know, this is uh, definitely a very conservative state uh, with very, uh, Columbus in particular has a lot of good doing white people who believe they're on the right side of justice, but (laughs) certainly I think inform a lot of the hardships that people of color and in particular black trans women have. And so, um, you know, I always say no, no president since 1968 has won an election without winning Ohio. And so politically, what that means is that, you know, we're experiencing things in this state that, um, really inform so much (laughs) around, I think, the national and global discourse around justice and liberation. My mom's side of the family is from Ohio. I have spent a lot of time in Ohio. (laughs) My my, my parents met in college in Ohio and my older sister went to college in Ohio. My ex-spouse is from Ohio. I have really been to Ohio a lot and to various parts of Ohio. (laughs) So um, I... uh, I do understand some some stuff you might be talking about about that. State. You love it. Do you it, love Ohio? Um. Well, I mean, like it's a thing that you grew that, a thing that you grew up with. Like it has like so many different. I've also performed there so many times. Yeah, it's a it's a state that I feel like. Um, everything that I know about Ohio is not something I ever see people talking about. Like I never hear people talking about. Um, for instance, the city of Cleveland having like a huge black population. Like, I just feel like, I feel like when people out on the coast or whatever, think about Ohio, it's like, maybe they think about white hicks or whatever, but like like Yellow Springs and Oberlin and the fields and corn. Yeah. But, but like, uh, huge black populations in a lot of cities. Also where my mom is from, she's from the South. They legit have Southern accents. Yeah. And all of Southern like, Ohio has Southern accents. You know, she's from right across from West Virginia. Okay. So it's like, that's like Appalachia, which is a different kind of thing, which is white poverty. Yeah. So, so there's a, there's like, there's the, there's Northern Ohio, which has a lot of black poverty. There's Southern Ohio, which has a lot of white poverty. And then there's, there are also some pockets of, you know, great wealth in the state, but it's just interesting because it has like, I think it has, um, like both extremes of the people who would vote one way for all these particular reasons and the people who would vote one way for all these other particular reasons sort of in one place. Is that your experience of the state of Ohio? You know, Ohio is a very white state, you know, no matter how you look at it, it's just a very white state. Um, and I say that just because even the largest city, Cleveland, uh, or at least the, the largest metropolitan city, Cleveland, uh, used to be a black city, you know, used to be majority mm. black. However, uh, due to redlining and the separation of East Cleveland from Cleveland, that reduced the black population in that city. So, um, you know, anytime any city has progressed towards being predominantly black, there has always been efforts from the government and from the state to interrupt that. And we've seen that, you know, happen many times throughout history, whether it's Washington, D.C., 
Atlanta, uh, Detroit, or any of these, you know, larger cities, Tulsa, Oklahoma, historically we've seen the state always fight to have, you know, ownership, um, predominantly for the white, uh, you know, middle, upper class uh, constituents of the world. Um, in my experience, it's always been Black. You know, I've always <laughs> had a Black experience in this state, you know, even when I was bused to a high school that was pre- predominantly white, I still went back to my hood, the, the, the neighborhood that I was from, and had a very Black experience with, you know, a, a Black working class mother who you did had jobs at McDonald's and Wendy's and was, uh, you know, a housekeeper, but she did what she did, you know, for us to survive. And, um, you know, I think so much just about how growing up in a white world as a Black person has shaped so much of what I fight for. Um, And so, yeah, you know, my experience, I think, no matter where I've gone, I've always come back to Ohio because I've seen everything here. You know, um, this state really prepared me to move to New York City and to live in Washington, D.C. and to travel all over the country, essentially doing the, the work that I do. I don't think I'd be able to do the work that I'm, I'm doing if I wasn't from here. You know, I think if I was from anywhere else, I probably would maybe have had some comfort, you know, to be able to maybe pursue other things. But liberation and freedom and justice for for people who look like me is the only thing that I can imagine. Um, Some would say that's sad and maybe some would say that's a good thing. I don't know what I say. Uh, I just say I'm from Ohio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. I mean, I can relate to, I can relate to that. I do think that one of the great, um, motivators in my life has been have I think experiences of rejection have always motivated me to try to work for change mm-hmm. um like I am a person that does a sort of has like sort of a prove them wrong mentality but like as a as an engine that then I am using you know it's fueling me to go and um affect the world around me and that's 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 great like cool congrats to me and all this stuff like (laughs) it has gotten me where I'm where where I thought I wanted to go I think something I noticed like as I get older is that I also want the opportunity to be a person who sometimes acts from a place of safety Mm -hmm. and it just has it's like it's you know, it's not, it's not that, and so, and so I will, but just, but just realizing that I spent so much of my life in this, motivated from this place of, um, like, I think that's what you said. Some might feel it was sad. I think for a very long time, I didn't think it was sad at all. Like, I was just like, no, this is my life and like, cool. And, you know, yes. And like, look what I'm doing with, with the, like, look what I'm doing with my opportunity and privilege. And also look what I'm doing with my pain. You know, I felt very proud of that. And then I got to a place where I was like, I don't know. I got to a place where I was like, kind of fuck this. Like, can I also operate from a place of peace? Like, I really wanted to figure out how to grow that in myself. 
How do you navigate that? Like keeping your peace amidst all this? Yeah, I think for trans people in particular, but for, you know, trans and queer people, I think how we have more for ourselves when a world and and maybe the world around us has denied us everything is I think a constant battle we're in. You know, do I want everything or do I just want to say fuck all of this? Um, (laughs) You know, and I think for me, because I've been at the bottom for so long that the only thing left for me to experience is peace, you know, um, you know, especially as someone who comes from, you know, a background where I was exposed to, you know, a lot of violence, um, you know, having a world where that is not the only thing that I know of myself or that I know of other people is our inherent ability to be violent is, you know, what brings me, I think, great hope. And it also, it it brings me great pause around um, what choices will I make? You know, what choices not only will I make, but what choices will I encourage others to make? Not only for themselves, but for the people around them. And, you know, one thing that I've learned is that we're all capable of not only making uh, mistakes, but doing things that are very bad and that actually hurt more people than they do make people feel good. And so for me at this point, I'm just asking myself more questions about what I can do to make myself feel good that does not come out of causing harm or hurt to somebody else. And, you know, for me, that brings me peace. um, And it brings me lots of challenges because sometimes, you know, I only want to think about myself. I don't want to think about everybody else, you know, and I think that's the big challenge for all of us as we're navigating through life. You know, my mother always told me, you aren't in this world alone. You you are not in this world alone. And so I think about that so much um, now because, you know, I think it's in a moment of a pandemic and we're all quarantining and social distancing and we're all like, I got to go get my tissue and I don't care who has tissue. I just need to get mine. Um, But I think we're at a moment where we actually have to consider so much more than just ourselves. And, you know, I always like to say that there's a bigger picture. And I truly believe that the picture is bigger once we're all able to see it. Um, Mm. And if we're not all able to see it, we'll just keep seeing the same pictures that we've always seen. Right. I mean, I guess I would ask you, (laughs) <laughs> you know, I, I feel like, um, so, be, so you and I got paired up because mm-hmm. we were working on this project, this past the mic project, which I have to say going into it, I felt, um, some nervousness about asking black women to do extra labor. Like I felt like, well, okay, what I'm being asked to do. And it was, and some of the folks organizing it were black women. So I thought, well, so I have to navigate. I don't know better than these women. You know, if this is what they're asking for, I can't say, well, you don't need this because it's too much labor. But I also felt like, what's the balance between, you know, giving what's being asked, which is access to a platform and having this expectation. Okay. Well, currently black lives matter is what's happening in the streets. So would you like to do extra work? You know, it just says, it, 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 in my mind, I was like, just, it was spinning in circles. And um, I was really happy that we got paired together. Yeah. And I'm curious about your 
you know, your experience on that side of things? Did it, does it, does it feel like extra work? Did it feel like extra work? Did it feel helpful? I mean, you know what? I'm open to any answer. (laughs) No, it did feel like a lot of work. And I think it was actually helpful in regard. It was helpful for me because I think I've been so accustomed to doing so many things out of my own need to survive that I haven't really been able to think about like, oh my God, I'm doing so much. And so even I think coming into this, you know, you were talking about some of the uh, IT things that you were doing last night for your your special. And um, I was just laughing in my head because I was like, you know, at my job, I am a lot of different things. I'm not only the executive director, I'm also the communications director. I'm the IT director. And you know, that's the thing that I think really was illuminated for me from doing the share of the mic was this is a great opportunity, I think, to bring some visibility to maybe some things and, and some topics that people aren't discussing. But it also was helpful for me to realize like, oh, I need more support. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, so it was yeah. in that regard. And I am glad that we got paired. I think going into it, I was a little um, unsure of what the goal was. I think that was the the challenge was, you know, what is the goal? What are we collectively, uh, you know, trying to achieve? Um, And I think, you know, doing this podcast even now is, I think, a reflection of what we're trying to achieve and what we're, we're trying to continuously achieve is creating a space where collaboration can be considered around um, how different identity groups can actually be in collaboration while also being aware of their privilege. You know, and I always, you know, teach from a framework around collaborative solidarity. I don't want to be in a relationship with someone who's merely just performing an ally act. I want to be in a lifelong relationship with someone who is committed to not only me, but committed to, you know, things that are bigger than us. Um, So, yeah, I think, you know, it was helpful. I think it gave me just more insight into what it is that I've already kind of created a framework around in my own life and in my work that I can continue to encourage and build and develop. So, um, yeah, it was a a fun, fun um, experience. (laughs) I was like, my whole thing was like, I'm not going anywhere near Cameron's DMs. Like, I'm <laughs> in that area of your Instagram. But I was excited <laughs> to do it and was really excited when it was over. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I mean, seriously, me too. Well, I had the same question that you just asked, which is um, sort of what was the overall goal? And I had to... You know, I guess, I guess my question would be, you know, so, so like I, you know, I, I mean, I identify as a cisgender person. I also identify as gender nonconforming cisgender person. I'm white as fuck. I mean, I like, I'm straight up from the suburbs, you know? Um, And I, I also, I care about uh, social justice from before I did stand up. Like that was sort of my initial path was I, I, was, I wanted to go into ministry. I was a theology major. Stand up came into my purview. 
And the whole time I've been doing stand-up, I've been trying to bring the self that I was before into the work that I do now, you know? And so then suddenly, you know, you find yourself or I have found myself, it's like, I work my ass off at my job. And I also have, and I could always have like some, you know, way bigger platform. And it's not like I think I'm the most important person on the planet, but here I have this access to these things. And, and it's like, I identify so much with my, with my queerness. I identify so much with not having space in the faith that I grew up in, not having space, you know, with this haircut always in every, you know, and I imagine I can use those experiences yeah. to have empathy for the fact that like, and I don't know, you know, shit about many different things mm-hmm. that like, like I know, understand my own marginalization. I can use that to empathize for greater marginalization, but I don't really, you know, know it. And so for me, it's like, when I thought about what's the point of this, it's just like, maybe there are lots of people like me, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there are lots of people like me who don't, who, you know, didn't then enter into the stand up world and now have this access to all sorts of different I can interview folks for my podcast that are come from different backgrounds but maybe there are people who they just were raised like me and then they just like went into whatever job they have and they don't and they don't know you yeah and so for me that's what the point was Mm -hmm. was maybe there's people like me who would benefit from knowing Mm Elle um and I don't know you know for you I don't know what you would hope to get out of uh, collaborative solidarity. I don't know what you would hope to get out of our relationship. Is it um, space to talk? Is it um, space to talk about the Marsha P. Johnson Institute? Like, what would you, because I would hope to allow other people like me to meet you. That's what I would hope. What would you hope? Ooh, what would I hope? I mean, I have a lot of hopes. I think, you know, um, you know, I have a lot of hopes. I mean, I think any space to talk about the Marsha P. Johnson Institute is is always one of the hopes just because it is such a critical intervention, I think, in, um, you know, possibilities for for Black trans people. You know, we live in a world that tells us that death is the only thing that we know. And, you know, having more people invest in not only like directly giving, but being able to amplify the need uh, to have these type of organizations, I think is is one of the the hopes I think that I have around what comes from having um, not only these relationships, but having these conversations. You know, I think one of the things that I'm very clear has happened is most people have empathy for the loss of life, um, but whose loss of life you know, I think is a a new point that we're getting to where most people are like, okay, maybe we should think about people in the ways that maybe we think about, I don't know, our dogs. You know, I think that's a conversation like the Karens of the world are having in a maybe different way. But, you know, I don't base my hopes around the Karens of the world. I base my hopes around Black people. And so, that's always the space for me that I go to first is what do I hope for for myself and what do I hope for for other Black people? I think my goal in my relationships, I will say, with white people is to move, is to encourage people who, are, who come from different backgrounds than I do 
to move beyond empathy. I think empathy is the first step that one needs to take in order to creating an action plan around how to utilize um, all of their talents, their gifts, their resources to really interrupt the system of anti-Blackness that creates the need for one to be empathetic in the first place. Um, So, you know, for me, that's really, I think, what I'm always striving to create, um, whether it's through my work as an organizer or in my interpersonal relationships, um, especially with those who, who are not Black. I think, you know, Black people, we have a lot of other questions to answer with each other and for ourselves. Um, so yeah, you know, it's a, it's a developing, I think, a uh, series of, <laughs> of hopes and goals. <laughs> um, I think that's why the collaboration is key because consent is so critical in every area of our lives. Um, and so really consenting in collaboration around expectations and goals is, I think, the next step for a just world, especially in, in, in which our goal is liberation, you know, especially trans and queer people. You know, liberation is our buzzword, but collectively, we don't have an understanding of what that means for all of our different identities and experiences. Right. That all makes a lot of sense to me. Thank you for for answering that question. Yeah, I want to talk a little bit about the Marsha P. Johnson Institute and what, what, what made you found it? What was the impetus? (laughs) Um, so much, honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, even just in a... <laughs> so much. Yeah. Um, so I've been organizing for a really long time. You know, I've I realized I've been organizing probably since elementary school. You know, I ran for class vice president in fourth grade and I lost. And I came back fifth grade and I said, you know what? I'm going to run again, but I'm going to run... Right for a new position. And so I ran for treasurer and I won. Um, And so since then I've been, you know, kind of organizing. I was uh, on the drill team in high school and I was the first trans person to be on the drill team of my high school. Um, You know, I was the captain of, of, of my track team. I was the vice president of my senior class. And so I've always been organizing. I just didn't call it that, you know, Um, I just knew I liked to win. Uh, and so um, I joined a collective of women in 2014 and really helped organize us. Um, and we were called the Trans Women of Color Collective of Ohio. And, you know, after forming TWAC Ohio, I moved on to an LGBT organization called Get Equal. Uh, you know, from Get Equal, I moved on to the Black Lives Matter Global Network. And, you know, it was my experience in all of that organizing where I was very clear that there was not an organization that spoke to the specific needs of Black trans women or Black trans people. And so 
um, at that time, in, in 2014, 2015, I was the only Black trans woman that was organizing with a national nonprofit around the murders of Black trans women. Um, and so that really is where the idea came from for the Institute was to have a organization that could hold the history and legacy of Black trans women organizing to provide solutions for our own experiences, but to also create a space in which the resources and tools um, and skills for Black trans people could be offered and provided. And so, you know, during that time, there was a lot of mentioning of Marsha P. Johnson. And what I recognized is, you know, there was a lot of that mentioning happening from the white queer community. Uh, and it was really interesting for me because I was like, well, what does Marsha mean for Black trans people? You know, why are we not hearing her story from the mouths of those mm. who are living the experiences most closely to hers? And, you know, I first became aware of Marsha P. Johnson probably in about 2009. Um you know, or 2010, it was a year in which um, a woman that I would see around New York, and uh, it was sometime around that time, uh, Carmen Escalera, who um, I thought was just the most beautiful person in the world, but she was murdered. And um, I was seeing all these different news articles. And so I was like, you know, I just, she's not the first person to be murdered who was trans. And granted, I knew what the experiences of my community was, but I always avoided it because I wanted to know something different about what could be possible for me. Um, and so in my research and in my learnings is when I learned of, you know, Marsha and always kept her close to me because I just felt like I didn't know a lot about her, um, but I wanted to. And so, you know, as I moved into formal organizing, I started getting very clear about her actions and the causes that she stood up for and um, realized there were a lot of similarities between her and the Black trans women that I was surrounded with. And so it really felt important to reclaim her uh, for us, you know, specifically for mm -hmm. Black trans people. And that's essentially why I founded the organization. And so we've been around since 2017 formally and, you know, we've grown. Um, and we're so excited to continue to grow because we know that our community needs more organizations. And that is one of the things that we're really proud of is to see that, you know, so many new projects and organizations have really been born out of a lot of the work that we were able to do over the last, you know, five to seven years. So the specifics of what the Institute wants to do for Black trans folks and Black trans women specifically. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Like what, what kinds of services you provide or what you're hoping to provide or? Yeah. So, yeah. Our mission is really to protect and defend the human rights of Black transgender people in the United States. You know, as the murders continue to happen to Black trans women in particular, but, you know, to the broader community, we recognize that you know, there is a lack of a fight for our human rights and dignity. Um, and so that's our, our number one priority. And so we do that through, you know, obviously 
you know, our, our social and digital advocacy, which most people are probably familiar with uh, if you follow us on social media. Um, but we also work directly in community, whether that's around creating, uh, you know, law proposals or law models or working in collaboration with organizations pursuing uh, justice around gun violence and gun violence prevention and laws around that. Uh, you know, our work is growing and, you know, we just turned one years old uh, last month. And so happy birthday, Marsha P. Johnson Institute. Um, but, you know, we had planned for so many different programs to launch this year, but with the pandemic, it really interrupted our work in a way that, you know, we've had to kind of go back to the drawing board like many organizations. And so, you know, what we recognize is that the number one goal that we have is, you know, to help aid in supporting our people stay alive during this global pandemic. And so the number one thing that we're doing right now is providing COVID relief to our community. And so we've partnered with several organizations to support our COVID relief efforts. And we're anticipating that our COVID relief efforts will have to continue for quite some time, considering all of the updates that we all have around this pandemic isn't going anywhere. So that is our number one program. But, you know, in the future, we are looking to launch fellowships for artists, specifically to, you know, ensure that art is recognized as an intervention and as a tool to interrupting some of the anti-Black uh, violence that we're seeing, whether that's at the legislative or uh, social levels, um, but also working to get our people, you know, access to voting rights. Um, to reproductive justice rights, you know, those are the issues and, and causes that we're taking on as an organization and that we're looking forward to pursuing in the future. And, you know, potentially providing housing, you know, is something else that, you know, we're, we're very, very interested in, you know, myself as a survivor of so many different things. It's always important for me, you know, to be connected to survivor causes and uh, things that provide more security for those who are at risk of, you know, being harmed or being a survivor of certain things. So the COVID relief that you're providing right now, does that look like um, actual money? Like, yeah. Does that look like, does that look like dollars sent to trans yeah. women? So as of today, we have sent out 175 cash stipends to Black Oh, that's great. Across the United States. So you know, our goal is to increase that to, is to a, I think our new goal is, I think, a thousand, but the goal keeps going up every day. And so with the donations from community, it helps us to be able to provide these resources directly back to those who need it. And so we really focused on several different kind of um, needs. So those who have recently lost their jobs due to the pandemic, those who are experiencing housing insecurity, those who are formerly incarcerated, and those who are doing survival sex work. So those are the areas in which we prioritize in our relief aid. How are you hearing from folks? How are you able to connect with those, with those folks? Yeah, so we actually, the first round of stipends came from applications. So we had an application process where uh, within the first 24 hours of the application, we received over 350 uh, applications. So, you know, it re for us, we recognized the need was great. We were like, oh, mm -hmm. 
hey, we maybe this was bigger than we thought it was going to be because people have such great needs. And so we're still actually processing applications that we received back in May. We haven't even been able to open the application back up just because for a small grassroots organization, we had to hire you know, a team to be able to support all the requests that we've right. So, you know, we're moving into, into that, you know, more and super excited to be able to provide more relief to those, especially at a time where, you know, the government is saying that, you know, there might not be another stimulus, you know, where does that lead? Absolutely. Community. Right. And what, what sorts of, what sizes of stipends are you, have you been able to provide? Like, what are you talking, what is, what is the amount that you've been able to send out? Yeah. So we've been able to send out anywhere. Uh, well, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't say that, but, uh, we've been able to send out $500 as the standard. Uh, that's great. That's great. So 175 people have received $500 from us. That's and great. That's really great. So sorry. Yes. Each, each person yeah. has received yeah. $500. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's great. I mean, um, Right, of course, because you know this is a time when. So you're talking about things like, um, it's just as each each thing that you talked about as that like here's a criteria that we are looking at is something where a black trans woman would be like would be more affected. So you lose your job and discrimination based on appearance or maybe you don't have access to transportation because you're already earning less. Um, and so therefore the search for a new job is, is difficult. Um, and so then you, you know, you lose your housing. We could, it's just very easy to see how these would have compounding effects in the black trans community that, that folks who are already the most vulnerable going into COVID would then be, that would be compounded uh-huh. and something like survival sex work at a time when, um, when there's a deadly virus on the streets. I mean, it's, 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 it's a, obviously these are complicated. These are issues that are made so much more complicated right. by the current right. situation. Exactly. And that's why, you know, we're committed to doing this as ever long as we need to, to really tr- try to provide as many interventions as we possibly can, you know, during the month of pride and even during this month, we've continued to learn of the murders of black trans women. Um, And the reality is as long as black trans women are disconnected from resources and access to wealth, these murders are going to continue, you know, and that's the unfortunate part about it. It is up to community organizations and all of those who are empathetic to figure out what ways they can continue to give um, and also really put pressure on the government as a system and not just in turn and in putting that pressure on an individual who's upholding that system, you know, Donald Mm -hmm. Trump is upholding a system that has been in place for so many years. This is not a new system. He's just the new actor who actually is wielding his power in a a way that maybe we've never seen in the last, you know, a hundred years, but, it's nothing new. It's the same system that created slavery. It's the same system that co-opted land. It's the same system that has really commodified all of our lives and forced us into submission. 
Right. I mean, in some ways, the only silver lining to his presidency is that he's so overt in his dealings, in his statements, in his direction. He's so, I mean, weirdly honest about (laughs) things that many other people have had the skill to cover up, you know, because usually by the time somebody is that level of a politician, they have been skilled in, you know, they've been taught, literally coached in how to speak about these systems. But because he just got there, like kind of based on his own idiocy and like his ability to, it, it's a, it's a very strange, um, it's a very strange silver lining to have where the, you know, the things he's saying that are so terrible are just the truth. And that's what's, that's what sucks so much about many of the things that he says. He's a reflection of America's brilliance, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So whatever this country has to say about him, we must all say it about us. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It's uh, yeah, absolutely. Sobering. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Oh, it is. It is. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. Yep. Yeah. Um, Elle, it's been, I really have appreciated your time today and I know, and we're sort of nearing the end of, of our conversation. And so um, if folks that are listening want to donate to support your work, the best way to do that. There you are. Yeah. So sorry. I turned the light out cause I was like, ciao. Um, so uh, we're on video for those listening. Uh, but uh, the best way to support our work is to follow us on social. You can visit us uh, or you can follow us at MPJ Institute on all social channels. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, MPJ Institute. You can also visit us on the World Wide Web at MarshaP.org. Uh, if you want to follow me personally, my views uh, that I express are not a reflection of the orgs, but of my own personal. You can follow me at Soul Free Dream. Awesome. Thanks, Elle. And before I send you into your day, I always have guests shout out a queero, so like a queer hero, mm-hmm. a person, place, or thing made you feel like you could be who you are today. Do you want to shout out a queero? Oh, my goodness. Ooh, person, place, and thing. Um, shout out to Mary J. Blige. <laughs> I'm a huge music lover and so I've just always been so grateful for black women in the music industry who you know share their pain and their joy and their triumph but also just show authentically who they were through fashion and their love of their people and so you know Mary J Blige and shout out to Brandy who has a new project out you know that's giving me great joy so not necessarily my queero but just some women I'm inspired by Oh, I I introduced Mary J. Blige at a at an awards show a few years ago, and when I met her, when I met her backstage, I will tell you the amount excited I was, and the amount she did not register that I was in the room or existed was perfect. Because <laughs> that's actually what you want, you know, especially like especially as a white person to be like, "Hey, Mary J.," and she's just like, like she just, I was like. Perfect. Like, thank you. I feel respected. Like, as she just looked through me, like, uh, 
like I was a ghost. It was perfect. Oh, I, it was perfect. It sounds right. It was perfect. It sounds doesn't right. sound doesn't it sound right? It was it felt right. Yeah. It was it was perfect. I'm living vicariously through you in that moment. I'm like <laughs> this would be in the same room with you. <laughs> exactly. I would probably pass out and roll on the floor and scream. Oh, I mean it was it just was it was per- she had a whole team around her. She was gl- glowing in the middle. She just looked and I just and I just just to just to have her walk past. Yes. That's all you need. I love Mary. So yes. Sending <laughs> her all the love. But thank you for also <laughs> sharing that because that's uh, such a special moment. <laughs> yeah, it was cool. Elle, it was really nice to talk with you. Thank you for your time. No, thank and, you. And um and I really hope that we do stay in touch and that yeah. I can hear uh, more ways that I could be helpful to you yeah. and to the Institute. Thank you. We're following each other on the, on the gram. Yeah. It's already, it's the already, already, oh, yeah, right. it's already, it's already set. Yeah. Uh, but have a great day. Yeah.